Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. While we continue our search for Earth-like planets with oceans and continents and nitrogen-oxygen atmospheres, we now have reason to believe that there may be super-large planets with oceans and thick atmospheres which may be able to support life even without sunlight. A critical concept in our search for extraterrestrial life is the idea of a Goldilocks Zone, the region distant enough from a given star where a planet would not be too hot, or too cold, but just right. Usually we calculate this off an approximation of how much sunlight a world of around Earth's mass would need to have not to have its oceans evaporate off, for the inner boundary, or likewise freeze solid for the outer boundary. Needless to say, this presupposes that life is using water rather than something more exotic, like ammonia or mercury, but the other half of that is that it's assuming a roughly Earth mass world. In recent years we've discovered a much wider variety of larger planets than our solar system is home to, and we've begun realizing it is possible to have planets potentially ten times more massive than Earth that could have oceans and thick hydrogen atmospheres, and thus might have liquid water at very unexpected distances from stars, indeed possibly in deep space floating around as a rogue planet, and this category is being named Hycian planets as a blend of the words hydrogen and ocean. Now while that term is new, the basic concept is not. We discussed it way way back in our first season episode Rogue Planets in 2015, and it has been discussed as a general notion among astronomers and in science fiction for a good deal longer. It got more interest as the Kepler Space Telescope was letting us spot many enormous new planets. As we spotted more exoplanets and got real data, we were able to refine our ideas and rule out some options. Our basic concept here is that very large and insulated planets could have liquid water even with little to no sunlight warming them, and now with the James Webb Telescope, which can see objects in certain temperature ranges better than anything we've previously had, particularly at those temperatures that water would exist rather than just ice, so we may be able to start spotting such planets. Now, how is it that such worlds are warm even when distant from their star? The key here is that as every planet forms it gains a lot of heat energy, this is from everything falling together, and for context, it takes several times an object's weight in rocket fuel to give enough kinetic or motion energy to get it away from Earth, and an object falling toward Earth must take on a similar amount as it falls, and when it hits, all that energy is turned into heat. The more massive the planet is, the more energy each object has as it falls towards it. Earth itself has a vast amount of energy, somewhere between 224 and 249 million trillion trillion joules, and that's how much energy it would take to vaporize the planet Death Star style, which is roughly a week of the Sun's entire energy output, and as much energy as hits Earth from the Sun in roughly 30 million years. This total energy is called the gravitational binding energy, and generally this rises with the square of the total mass and falls off with the radius. Loosely speaking, a sphere twice as wide will have eight times the mass as a similarly composed planet, as volume rises with the cube of radius or diameter, so a planet with the same density or makeup as Earth but twice as wide would have eight times the mass and double the radius, 
and thus a gravitational binding energy of 8 squared divided by 2, or 32 times that of Earth or 32 times the initial heat energy. Alternatively, a planet that is twice as wide has 2 squared or 4 times the surface area for heat to radiate off and cool the planet, so the larger planet would lose heat 4 times faster but has also got 32 times the heat energy on formation. Essentially it's a bucket with a hole in it, and the hole is bigger so it leaks faster, but the bucket is so much bigger so it takes longer to drain, as it just has so much more water in it, or heat in this case. That's simplified of course, for instance the sun is filling a planet with heat via sunlight, and things radiate heat faster when they are hot versus when they are cold, and indeed it goes to the fourth power of temperature, so something 10 times hotter is leaking heat energy into space 10,000 times faster. The very smallest red dwarf stars are typically 10 times as hot as Earth, and about 100 times the surface area, and thus about a million times brighter than Earth. They have a vast amount of gravitational binding energy too, around 100 million times what Earth has, and of course it is also producing heat in its core by fusion. Fusion is an amazing source of power, and it is what runs stars, but before we knew what it was we assumed stars merely were glowing hot because of their sheer mass and heat of formation, and while this will give you the wrong age for a star, it's still an enormous value, in the tens to hundreds of millions of years. And Earth's own molten core isn't from sunlight, it's from all that initial heat and decay of radioactive particles like uranium. Critically though, a big object doesn't leak heat at the temperature its core is, Earth for instance is hotter than most star surfaces, including our own sun, rather they leak at the temperature the surface is, and so you get a rapidly cooling surface on planets until they get to a temperature at an equilibrium with the energy radiating from the hot center, radiating from that surface into space, and including the sunlight they get. These days most of Earth's energy is coming to the surface from the sun, which was fainter in the past while Earth itself was still much hotter in its core and lower layers. Even then the Sun provided the overwhelming supermajority of surface heat. Lots of things can add an insulative effect too, a wider planet for instance will have heat reach the surface from the center slower, and ice clouds or various other surface and atmosphere factors can also add insulation. Key point for why this topic has renewed and gained vigorous interest these days is that we have only very simple models of predicting the thermodynamic situation on planets, especially ones we don't know the composition of, and as our database has grown along with real measurements of surface temperatures and masses of planets, we can do better. Some things we expected turned out wrong or off by a bit and other surprises came up. As an example of that, we know tidal locking, where a moon or planet shows the same side to the planet or star it orbits all the time, like our moon does to Earth, is very strongly controlled by distance. As a result, virtually every moon is tidally locked to its planet, but we figured most planets in the Goldilocks zone of dim or red dwarfs would need to be so close they were tidally locked. Newer data and better modeling though has inclined us to think that oceans and atmospheres might act like a lubricant to keep the planet from grinding down to a relative halt in its spin as it orbits a planet, thus it would take longer for the lock to occur. But it is likely that Earth-sized planets around the dimmest of red dwarfs would still be tidally locked, eternal sunshine on one side, eternal darkness on the other and with only a thin twilight band ringing around the planet between its poles, where various effects like libration would cause noticeable variation in lighting. Now bigger planets take longer to tidally lock, 
and it's rather hard to say when a planet mostly composed of gas and liquid like all gas giants is actually locked, since the surface is fluid, however we would still expect these Hycian planets, if close enough to the dimmest of red dwarfs, which is also the most common type of star, to lock eventually, and the neat thing about them in this case is that the planet would still be habitable on the dark side. This particular class of planet is getting nicknamed a Dark Hycian Planet, and while that references the side facing away from the Sun, it's worth noting that such planets, if they have a surface of ocean or rock below, it is probably buried under so much atmosphere and ocean that it's dark even on the side eternally lit by sunlight. Now this is no great bar to life existing. We still don't know where life began on Earth, maybe in tidal pools, maybe in phosphorus-rich inland mud pools, maybe in impact craters where comets crashed that already had life on them, there are many other options too, but the lead candidate for some time has been deep sea ocean vents, far below where sunlight can reach. We generally believe that life began there about 3.7 billion years ago, about a billion years after Earth formed, and for many millions of years did not run on photosynthesis. Even when it arrived, this was a different photosynthesis than the cyanobacteria which we believe emerged around a billion years later, but it was using sunlight nonetheless, and this abundant power source fueled a much larger and richer ecosystem, one so rich that the detritus of it can sink down in the oceans as marine snow, far from sunlight, and run an entire extra ecosystem of creatures that eat that organic waste or each other. If the tightly locked Hycian planet is warmer, or sunlit on one side, we will inevitably get currents carrying warmth and dead life to the darker regions, akin to marine snow. However, a planet larger than Earth with great deep oceans and a great big hot core could potentially support life on that dark side too, or even in deep space, where the planet is slowly cooling over the eons but has large steady belts of liquid water in which life could dwell. Water itself is not a good thermal insulator, part of why it is handy for use as a coolant, but snow and ice are better. Ice is generally about as good an insulator as concrete, while snow is much better and roughly parallel to wood, but again both are better than water and ice, normal ice anyway, floats on water, meaning you can maintain liquid ocean well underneath a coral protective layer of ice, keeping things warmer. This is even easier if there's a thick layer of hydrogen and helium above as an atmosphere, but that's also part of the problem. Our default model shows surface temperatures might be as high as 200 Celsius or 400 Fahrenheit, and those are probably not favorable conditions for life. What we're looking for is those Hycian planets without such high surface temperatures, and those should exist, but the other half of the problem is that these planets interest us principally because they are large. We've discovered many thousands of exoplanets in the last quarter of a century, and virtually all of them are either very large or very close to their sun, and the overwhelming majority are both. Our detection method works better for big objects or ones close to their star, and more so for both, and this means a lot of planets that are as big as Jupiter and as hot as Mercury. I don't believe we found any extrasolar dwarf planets yet, things like Pluto, but they will probably outnumber every other type of large planet combined. A Hycian planet though is one we could plausibly detect now, and have many candidates for, and one close to a red dwarf star, the most numerous type of star, not only might be very easy to find lots of, but also could have astronomically visible biosignatures. As an example, some chemicals don't survive ultraviolet light very long, 
it tends to be rough on chemical bonds, every star has a characteristic spectrum, typically with a peak in a given color range based on its temperature. Our Sun, for instance, peaks in blue-green, not the yellow that folks would expect, and the dimmer red dwarfs typically peak in infrared with only a small portion of light in the visible range, and very little in blue or violet, let alone ultraviolet. Their light is still white, mind you, most incandescent light bulbs give off light in the same general range as red dwarfs. Hotter stars, those in the F, A, B, and O ranges, give off far more ultraviolet light as a percentage of their emissions, and plants in the habitable zone of these worlds would generally not have the atmospheric signature of any chemical that disassociated from ultraviolet, whereas those chemicals would have very long atmospheric dwell times around red dwarfs. Such being the case, they'd be of higher concentration and much easier for us to spot. Nitrous oxide is one of those chemicals we would expect to find as a byproduct of life, but unfortunately it doesn't last long under ultraviolet light. Silver red sun and a thick atmosphere both give it much better odds of being able to grow to astronomically detectable concentrations, and a high sea and world around a red dwarf is thus both a planet we're very likely to spot in quantities, and where nitrous oxide and many other chemicals that might be biosensuals are easier to spot. What's more, those sensuals will be visible even in the interstellar void on a rogue planet, so long as the temperature is still high enough for them to be a vapor. Nitrous oxide, for instance, has a boiling point of negative 88 Celsius or negative 127 degrees Fahrenheit, and a freezing point only a few degrees cooler, negative 91 Celsius or negative 132 Fahrenheit, but that means that it will be a vapor on any planet warmer than that, and we'd expect any Hycian planet, even out in deep space, to be above that temperature. So for the purpose of finding alien life, Hycian planets represent a potentially low-hanging fruit of detection, as we expect them to be numerous, easy to detect, and likely to preserve telltale signs of life in their atmospheres if they have them, particularly around red dwarfs, which are the most numerous type of star, indeed outnumbering every other kind combined. Of course if such plants are numerous, it behooves us to have a plan for colonizing them, and the methods we will use depend a lot on whether or not they have any surface rock or surface ice which raises another type of common planet of a similar size to Hycian planets, which are ice giants. In the past we classified Uranus and Neptune as gas giants, but we tend to feel the term ice giant fits them better, and this is also the area in which we get the term mini-Neptune, and is an example of how we're still a bit primitive and limited in our planetary cataloging and typing. On top of that we also have icy moons, which will often have liquid layers or pockets, and those are going to be super common out in the cosmos, so we'll save discussion of them for another day. For now let's ask what is an ice giant, why are Uranus and Neptune examples of them, and why isn't Saturn one? And what is a mini-Neptune anyway? First, it is worth noting that while Uranus and Neptune are 14 and 17 times more massive than Earth, larger than the range we expect for Hycian planets and super-Earths, which we tend to assume maxes out after about 10 Earth masses, Uranus and Neptune are still tiny compared to Saturn at 95 Earth masses, Jupiter at 318 Earth masses, or HR 2562b, which is on the hazy edge between gas giant and brown dwarf and masses several thousand times what Earth does, and more importantly, hundreds of times what Uranus or Neptune do. So it isn't really surprising that plants that are widely separated in mass will have different characteristics. 
One of those characteristics is how massive a planet needs to be in order to attain its hydrogen and helium during solar system formation. The overwhelming majority of particles out there are hydrogen and helium, but they are very light and very easily stripped and blown away by solar wind once a star ignites. The colder a planet is, the less ultraviolet light its star gives off, the stronger its magnetosphere, all of these factor into how well hydrogen and helium will remain behind, as do many other lesser variables, but the biggest factor is the sheer mass and gravity of the planet. We call a planet an ice giant rather than a gas giant when it contains a much higher portion of heavier elements than we would expect it to have, meaning the solar wind stripped a lot of free hydrogen and helium off it. Uranus and Neptune are only about 20% hydrogen and helium by volume, whereas Jupiter and Saturn are both more than 90% hydrogen and helium. In this context, ice would include frozen water, but also includes other volatiles like ammonia and methane, also common on comets and icy moons, whose minuscule gravity tends to be bad at holding on to free hydrogen and helium, even when there's no appreciable sunlight and solar wind hitting them. We didn't know Uranus and Neptune were low on hydrogen or helium until recently, as they are covered with a thick atmospheric shell of it, and estimating their composition required a lot more data and superior modeling, and of course they still have way more than Earth has. They also wouldn't have begun with such a low ratio of hydrogen and helium, but have lost it over time, and are now principally oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, and sulfur, which makes them intensely valuable as a resource for getting the main materials for life, as those along with hydrogen and phosphorus are the big six that you and I, and every other organism we know of, is made from. Hydrogen is by no means rare on Uranus or Neptune either, as to phosphorus, that's a bit rare everywhere, and we examine that shortage and its possible implications on the Fermi Paradox, the big question of where all the aliens are, in our Phosphorus Problem episode from a couple years back. We also discussed colonizing ice giants in our episode Colonizing Neptune, where we introduced the concept of two megastructures, the Neptunian Chainsaw and the Chandelier City. Ice giants are fascinating places to colonize, and are also great sources of raw materials for space habitats, like O'Neill cylinders, for providing the building blocks for life. However, they do not represent a good candidate for life the way Hycean planets do, as there's no decent chance for water oceans there. This brings up mini-Neptunes, which is what Hycean planets would generally have qualified as examples of in the past. A mini-Neptune is not simply a smaller version of an ice giant, but does share the traits of having lots of hydrogen, helium, and ices, and also presumably having a significant rocky and metallic core. The term gas dwarf as opposed to gas giant has also been tossed around, and that can potentially include some worlds only around as massive as Earth, like Kepler-138d, which is more like the density of Pluto, making about the same mass as Earth but half again as wide. Earth, incidentally, is the densest planet in the solar system, and denser than our Sun or any moons either, though there might be some small metallic asteroid that's denser than Earth. At the moment it holds that title of densest out of thousands of known and measured solar objects. So the lower threshold for a mini-Neptune or gas dwarf might be even less mass than Earth, and the upper threshold is more likely objects about twice as wide as Earth, and the real dividing line would depend on a lot of factors, as I said Hycean plants would have fallen into this category before, and I would expect it to be one that gets a lot more subcategories carved out of it and to have overlapped with many others. Now, would we colonize these planets? 
Well, channel regulars already know the answer is yes. We've got plans for colonizing everything up to and including giant stars and black holes. Many of the plants in the mini Neptune range will essentially be ice planets somewhere between Earth and a bigger version of Pluto, and that would constrain what you can do in terms of terraforming since warming up a planet made mostly of frozen water, ammonia, and methane isn't going to leave you much solid material left behind. We discussed some modified or transhuman scenario for such planets in a look at colonizing Pluto, but for humans and normal Earth life, except maybe penguins, life here is inside large insulated domes or caverns. Probably with walls made of some strong and thermally insulative material like vacuum walls or aerogel. The gravity is likely to be adaptable, not too much lower than Earth or too much higher, and it would be as easy to make these contained environments as comfortable as Earth as any other space habitat, but such a planet isn't likely to be in star's habitable zone or it would have melted away, especially in terms of any surface regions, and adding solar mirrors to increase the temperature or alter the day length isn't going to work out well, as is a giant ice cube, albeit one with a large rocky mass inside it too probably a molten one. Some might just happen to be in that range where we could melt them off and ship off those volatiles and have a nice Earth-like planet left behind that we could heat with solar mirrors or shove closer to its star. Indeed we have a category of planets called Sithonian planets that might include such ice giants or other worlds who ended up too close to their star and were left like Mercury, a hot, dense, airless planet. So your goal is to get close to the star but not too close, and that will depend on both the star's characteristics and the planets. A hot bright star for instance might be better handled by using solar mirrors that didn't reflect ultraviolet to help warm the world and minimize atmospheric stripping. The Hycean plant though is our case where we expect to have oceans and a very wide range of distances from their star in which they could be warm enough for life, have enough gravity maintain that hydrogen envelope even while being warmed up and hit by solar wind. To live on one of these probably means domes too, as the air pressure near the surface is likely to be way too much for humans and our household animals and plants. We might strip some atmosphere off them and terraform them, as opposed to living in submarine cities, or bring in deep sea marine life already used to high pressure. Unlike living on airless plants though, with pressurized domes here you would need your environment to be like a submarine, lower pressure than its surroundings and this might include not just habitats floating on the sea, but those floating under the sea or even floating in the sky by buoyancy as we often envision for the clouds of Jupiter or Venus. Each of these represent very different scenarios, and where chambers are concerned that have to survive higher pressure, size is not your friend, for making great big bubble habitats with individual chambers each kilometers wide but many touching bubbles much like our foma bubbles in the sink or bath, works fine, and super strong materials like diamond could allow some enormous ones. They are also enormous planets and might have some enormous critters native to them, or that we might engineer to live on them, and that could include not just giant whales or kraken but possibly giant floating gas bag creatures milling around the sky. All in all, maybe not the favorite place to build a copy of Earth, but possibly some interesting places to visit, and as they may turn out to be the easiest places to detect life on, they might be where our first interstellar probes and scouts travel to. One of our barriers to understanding exoplanets is gathering data for better models, 
but in others designing those better models and trying to predict the conditions on other planets from minimal data, which is no easy task and as more and more planets get found, likely in their billions, it is something that we will probably need to adapt artificial intelligence and neural networks to help with. If that sounds like something you might want to make a hobby out of, or even a profession, our friends over at Brilliant can help you get a better understanding of world-changing technology like AI and neural networks. Brilliant's visual, interactive approach is engaging and makes STEM concepts actually stick, with helpful explanations along the way that never leave you guessing. Whether it's computers, science, or math, you will never regret having a better understanding of how they work, be it for professional development or just because you're a casual curiosity seeker interested in knowing more about our world or the cosmos. Brilliant focuses on interactive and hands-on learning and breaking big important concepts down into understandable and interactive pieces, whether it's basic algebra or neural networks. With thousands of lessons and more being added each month, Brilliant can help you reach your goals. In just 15 minutes a day, with bite-sized lessons, you can master topics that you once thought impossible, so you can help pioneer new innovations. With Brilliant, you can learn at your own pace, learn on the go, and learn a little something new every day. To get started for free, visit Brilliant.org slash IsaacArthur or click on the link in the description, and the first 200 people will get 20% off Brilliant's annual premium subscription. We have a lot of ways we come up with episodes for the show, sometimes by poll, sometimes on a personal whim, and often by the suggestion of one of our regular editors, so if you enjoyed today's topic, you can thank Brianna Brownell, one of our regular editors here who helped come up with and prepare today's script. If you'd like to suggest an episode topic yourself, we will be having another YouTube poll for a few topics after today's episode, and you're welcome to comment on that poll with new episode ideas, which I'll review and we'll probably do a poll or two on those in a week or two as well, or I might just see some I like and do them on a whim. Speaking of future episodes, we have a lot of episodes coming up, starting with our mid-month Sci-Fi Sunday episode on February 12th, where we'll look at the concept of super soldiers. Then in two weeks we'll continue our discussion from last fall about Time Wars with a look at multiversal warfare and the implications of some of the crazier aspects of quantum mechanics, and two weeks from now we'll take a journey to Alpha Centauri. If you'd like to get alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notification buttons. You can also help support the show on Patreon, and if you want to donate and help in other ways, you can see those options by visiting our website, IsaacArthur.net. You can also catch all of SFIA's episodes early and ad-free on our streaming service, Nebula, at go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur. As always, thanks for watching, and have a great week!